This podcast is created for farmers and powered by Pioneer Agronomy to bring you agronomic insights and proven solutions to fuel forward-thinking farming. Howdy, folks. Welcome back to the Pioneer Agronomy podcast. It's been a hot minute. As always, we have Pioneer agronomist Nick Monig and Jamie Farmer joining us. I am Territory Manager Abby Korf. We are excited to chat through several relevant topics this morning from anhydrous to herbicides, things that are on our minds that are likely on yours as well. So we will go ahead and get this party started with anhydrous. Jamie, we were talking about making sure that anhydrous gets sealed. Do you want to talk a bit more about that for us? Yeah, uh, Abby, obviously big question for my neck of the woods with the drought that we've got going on. Hopefully, uh, you know, as we record this today, Monday the 24th, some rain forecasted. Hopefully we see that come to fruition. But the biggest thing is just uh, making sure that we get that anhydrous sealed. So when we're in dry conditions, you know, that point of injection can see an anhydrous zone, expansion zone go from, you know, something that's normally three to four inches that could stretch out five to six inches. So thinking about soil that's dry, it's going to be cloudier. Uh, you've got more pockets of air in there, uh, opportunity for that gas to move up in the soil profile and get into uh, either a situation where it'd be right in the seed zone or possibly even lose it. So there's no good way to quantify how much rain we need to get out of this, you know, to make that a non-issue. Basically, you just want to evaluate what the track looks like and uh, use your nose after the fact, you know, come back as they've made a pass around the field or something. If you can still smell gas, then yeah, you probably need to park it until you get some more soil moisture. Deeper that you can put that, the better chances you have of getting it sealed right. You know, those shallow rigs are going to run into uh, more risk because they just aren't able to put it as deep. So eight inches would probably be ideal um, in a dry scenario. Obviously, we get plenty of moisture out of this. This may be a mute point for us, but uh, still good point to make sure that you use your nose as you make that application to see if you're getting it sealed good. And when Jamie talks about getting this moisture, it's October 24th where we sent here today. Hasn't been too much moisture recently, so we're looking forward to some moisture in the forecast. Hopefully all of us get a, a good taste of that. But we've seen a lot of variability when it comes to temperature, both in the air and in the ground. Nick, do you want to talk about the temperatures that we're looking for when it comes to getting that anhydrous in the ground? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. So with anhydrous, when we, before we apply it, we want to make sure that we have 50-degree soil temperatures trending downward. Uh, we really don't want them bumping up above 50 after we make that application. The whole reason why is because that conversion of ammonium, which is a stable form of nitrogen, it's NH4+, which is attracted to the soil particle, which is a negative charge. The conversion of ammonium, that stable form, to nitrate, which is a losable form, it's a NO3 minus, which does not hold to the soil particle. That whole thing is mediated by bacteria, and that whole process is driven by temperature. Soil temperatures get above 50 degrees, that process happens really quick. Soil temperatures below 50 degrees, it slows that process way down and almost halts that process to an extent. So that allows that anhydrous to stay in that ammonium form longer come springtime. So that's why we don't want to go out there, let's say this last week, where 80 degrees temperatures, 
in October, I didn't look at soil temperatures were probably in the seventies. That process would have happened really quick. And we may have had some nitrate ready to go before springtime, which makes it losable to things like moisture in the spring. Speaking of making it losable, what are some avenues we can take to ensure that we're not losing it or what mechanisms or technologies do we have at our disposal for that? Yeah. So obviously we watch soil temperatures, number one. And then number two, we use a product like InServe, which is shown over and over again. There's plenty of data that shows it slows that conversion process from ammonium to nitrate. Works very well on that. There's a lot of different stabilizers out there. I would just say ensure that you know your stabilizer is working because there's a lot of products out there that don't do what they say they're going to do. And InServe is a product that there's plenty of data out there that shows it does do what it says it does. It slows that conversion over from ammonium to nitrate. Yeah, the main reason to just, you know, I'll add a couple things to this is InServe definitely helps us in the fall for maybe some of those warm breaks we can get there throughout the winter. But really, InServe in general, we use it in the fall and the spring for that May monsoon that we get in Missouri. So just trying to maintain that anhydrous in a less losable form for as long as possible by basically slowing down that conversion that that bacteria is able to do like Nick was talking about earlier. And we see this, you know, like he mentioned, mountains of data. So 7% yield increase and a half point dryer tends to be where most of those studies have come over the years. And so you think about that from a dollar for dollar standpoint, how high input costs are right now, just good insurance to have out there to make sure you're stabilizing, but not all stabilizers on the market, you know, are apples to apples as a comparison goes. So InServe has been around for a long time. It does what it says it's going to do. Uh, there's definitely plenty of folks out there trying to mimic that. You know, Nick makes a great point. Just make sure you look into what you're using and does it really do what it says it's going to do. Good call there. I think it's it's always good to have a little bit of an insurance policy when we can, and this is one of the ways that we can we can do that. On a similar note, this time of year, we're also talking a lot about fall herbicides, their importance, etc. Jamie, do you want to go into why folks should be considering fall herbicides, uh, what that looks like and their importance? Yeah, the main reason, I guess, that I always promote fall herbicide applications would be mare's tail problems for us. You know, it's a weed that you get quite a bit of emergence from it in the fall. You can get some spring emergence too. In our springs, that thing can bolt and get ahead of us in a hurry, especially if we're wet. And so, you know, it can become really difficult to, to take down. And so being able to get it when it's in that rosette stage, it's a small plant here in the fall, lessens our workload in the spring and helps us get in front of a pretty troublesome weed for us in Missouri. The other thing, just breaking up that green bridge. So we think about, you know, pest and some of the things we deal with for our cropping systems uh, year in, year out. So you know, whether it's uh, cyst nematodes on some of those winter annuals like henbit or, um, you know, some of the pests that can fly in early like black cutworm moss laying eggs and some of that green mat out there. Just breaking that up a little bit helps us too. And then probably the other big thing really is plantability and tillage ease that you can deal with in the spring. So controlling a more even, less extreme ranges and moisture differences in the field where you go from a green mat versus areas of the field that don't have those weedy patches. Just getting some consistency out of that, warming those up a little bit faster, uh, dealing with that moisture a little bit better. All of that helps us in the spring. It seems like every year we have less and less field workable days here in Missouri. And so being able to utilize a fall herbicide application, 
you're really just lifting some of that workload to a different part of the growing season that allows you to probably free up some of those field workable hours for more important tasks in the spring. I think that's a really good call out there, freeing up some of those workable hours. We're looking for all of them that we can get when it comes to ourselves and our and our help as well, which is hard to come by these days too. So definitely a big contributor to that. But I think the obvious next question that I've got for the both of you is we know it's important for keeping those weeds at bay. It's plantability and tillage as well. But when do we spray it this fall? How do we manage that? And then what are your recommendations as far as what to spray? Yeah, so for me, I really don't like to get in too big a hurry, especially if you're not utilizing a residual herbicide in the fall. Uh, I want to get a lot of those weeds to flush up. We've been dry, so there's still plenty that are going to come. This rain that we're you know starting to see come to fruition here uh, early this week is going to stimulate a lot more germination and emergence of some of those winter annuals. So making sure that you get most of those flushed up. I like waiting until after the 1st of November target days where we have you know highs as high as we can get them you know 50 degrees and above really 60 and above is ideal and then uh even more important maybe is those nightly lows you know so if you can pick kind of a mild temperature range there when you target that application during the uh you know sunshine part of the day when you've got some activity going on in that plant it can be product driven so if you're only relying on uh say products like dicamba or 2,4-D or Roundup here in the fall, then obviously you want to have good growing conditions for those winter annuals, good sunshine, uh, let those systems in that plant be able to drag those herbicides throughout. If you're utilizing a residual, you can probably get a little bit ahead of that. You don't have to necessarily wait as much for those weeds to flush because that residual is going to help, uh, you know, get after some of those before they germinate. So that's kind of the way I would look at it is just some guys have asked, do they need to get in a big hurry here uh, as we've been dry here in October? There's really not a lot that's flushed up yet. Uh, this rain this week will likely stimulate a lot of that. And so then getting after them um, once most of those weeds are up is probably the best case scenario. While we're on the topic of these fall herbicides, Nick, what should folks be considering when it comes to wheat? Yeah, Abby, when it comes to wheat, you know, most of it, that we wanted to get planted is planted most of the dry fertilizers on uh, i know there's probably still some yet to go but the majority of it's done so really to me the next step is if you no-tilled that wheat uh, without a burn down it's probably starting thinking about what jamie's been talking about he's talking about fall herbicide applications to be the same with wheat so if we no-tilled into that we didn't burn it down we probably got some hen bits various other winter annual weeds that are coming or after this rain like jamie mentioned may be coming so a fall herbicide pass, I really like that application, you know, an application of Culex or Harmony, one of those products, just to take care of those winter annuals that are there this fall. And so as we pass into November, like Jamie's talking about, it's a great time to spray wheat, in my opinion, with a herbicide that's got some winter annuals in it. We can wait till spring. A lot of people do wait till spring, but the only thing is if that hen bit starts to get a lot of size on it, it gets harder to kill in the spring. So now if you got a chance to get it november is a good time to do that and then i would just include the insecticide pass just to take care of some of those fall aphids they transmit barley yellow dwarf virus we have a milder winter or milder fall we'll see more of those and more problems with those so just keep in mind we're using culex harmony probably two of the most major ones herbicides to use post-emergence on wheat that we need at least two leaves on that wheat before we can apply them and then we've got all the way till flag leaf in the spring. But just keep that in mind. That's probably the next thing to think about wheat. And then after that, we'll go into 
nitrogen applications this spring. So as folks wrap up harvest, obvious next thoughts are going to be anhydrous and fall herbicides. What else should people be thinking about as we wrap things up and start preparing for 2023? Yeah, Abby, I think, you know, to me, one of the big things in the fall, obviously, is P and K applications with fertilizer prices being higher right now. There's a lot more look in terms of how to become more efficient and more effective with that. And so to me, probably the best way we can do that is with soil sampling. And for some folks that were looking at PNK applications this fall to get them on, maybe they got it pre-bought and they want to get it on, probably looking at soil sampling. I would just encourage you, if you haven't done it yet, yeah, wait till we get some of this rain comes through. Hopefully it comes to fruition, moves through. If not, if you've taken some of those samples back when it was drier, I guess the one thing I would caution you to keep in mind is that if your lab is running a water pH, those water pHs might be artificially low just because a lot of those salts and stuff are remaining on that soil surface. So you have to keep that in mind. That might be artificially lower. That may not necessarily be real. Now, if your lab like MU or Perry is running a salt pH, that'll account for it. And then the other thing would be potassium levels. So you pull soil samples in really dry soil conditions, it will artificially lower that potassium level. So you have to keep that in mind. And then the other piece of that, the twofold piece, is that we, without moisture, we haven't really broken down any of that dead crop residue, which will give us potassium back. That hasn't happened yet. So that's another reason why that potassium level will be lower. But just keep in mind, if you've had soil samples pulled in dry conditions, you might see, if it's a water pH, a lower pH level, and you might see a lower potassium level. But just encourage you to keep that in mind. And if you haven't sampled yet, let's wait till some rain comes through before we do that. Perfect. Thanks, Nick. Uh, on to a different topic. Instead of looking ahead, let's take a moment to reflect a, a bit on Harvest 2022. What notes do you all have on performance across your territories? Yeah, I guess I'll jump in first. So I've got uh, probably an agronomist stream uh, really across West Central Missouri. So good chunk of my area is uh, D2, D3, even some portions D4 drought this year. So thinking about just pretty uh, pretty low yield levels compared to what we probably went into the season hoping to get. Products that could handle the drought definitely showed their colors. Others out there that don't have quite the drought and heat tolerance, you know, fell off in places. The ground made a huge difference for folks. And then on top of that, even the fertility. So, you know, the saying of good fertility pays double in a drought year, definitely plenty of scenarios out there where we could showcase that. And then you don't have to go very far north in my area, and it's some of the highest corn yields folks have seen, you know, ever. And so thinking about places like Clinton County and north and east of there, you know, I've got guys up there that have harvested all their corn acres and tied their 2014 uh, record there at 222. And so, you know, super amped about their performance and, you know, products like 1222, 1359, 0953, 1718 for us really ringing the bell and hitting some record yields for them. And then you go south and you look at some of those more drought tolerant products, the Aquamax ones and the drought zone really looking good. So corn's kind of all over the place. You know, talked with one of our breeders about some of the lessons they learned in 2012. You know, thinking about kind of the last drought year many of these guys would have seen, you know, 10 years ago. What kind of lessons we learned from that. And really, uh, it was kind of eye-opening for me. Uh, He mentioned that 
most of the parents they built in really didn't have much staying power in the lineup uh, going forward. So there's a lot of decisions that were made in the last drought that didn't necessarily hold true to be the best decisions for, you know, the following seasons after that. And so I caution some of these growers not to have too big a knee-jerk reaction to what they're seeing. You know, some of the products that were their best products last year and uh, weren't necessarily anywhere close to the top of the page for them this year. It comes back to how much risk are you willing to take on in an operation? How much drought tolerance do you feel like you need? Um, It's difficult to get something that's really going to do the best of the best in the good years to still do the best of the best in the dry years as well. So, you know, just some of those lessons that, uh, you know, we need to think about when we think about planting a package and, and showing how important that is. Fungicide still paid uh, pretty good, even in the absence of southern rust this year. So all in all, I think most of them probably feel like performance is better than it should have been going into it. A lot of guys expecting lower yields than what they realized out there. Not to say that's the case for every single person, but the vast majority of the folks I've talked to on the corn side pretty impressed and then switch gears to soybeans pioneers a series beans highlighting their industry leading performance again this year so got uh, several folks very impressed with how good soybean yields were in a lot of cases 20 bushel higher than they probably expected to in the drought zone especially so really hanging in there i think that just shows what the breeders have been able to do on both corn and soybeans to bring bring the the bottom up and then some pretty impressive stuff on the top into field averages in the 80s and 90s um, some contest entries out there over 100 so pretty impressive on the soybean standpoint we got a really robust lineup there that definitely handled some stress this year so excited to move forward with both lineups i think just plenty to learn from and and so much variability out there it's going to be important to look at multi-year data and really look at wide area data to make a whole lot of decisions off of this year, at least in West Central Missouri. And I think that's probably why you called this year an agronomist dream is because of the ability to analyze the data across a lot of different field conditions, dry, wet, and uh, everything in between. Is that a a correct assumption? Yeah, nobody wants to wish a drought on anyone, but for us, you know, the last drought I dealt with in my area was that Hamilton area in 2018, but for a majority of these guys I work with, they haven't seen a drought in 10 years, and so you think about the products that we are evaluating in our advancement, we look at them for two years in our impact plots, so they had a pretty productive year last year, and the ones that would have gotten evaluated this year had a pretty tough year, so it really helps us define those road ditches a lot better on some of these new products that we're looking at and some of these that we've just rolled out. So yeah, it's, it's good for an agronomist. It obviously feel the pain for the growers that, uh, that suffered, uh, the effects of a severe drought, but ultimately helps us to make better, more solid decisions going forward. Absolutely. I think that's the bottom line. Yeah. Nick, what about on your side? Yeah, I think Jamie summed that up well. I mean, I think that's an important thing for people to remember is we go through a dry year like this and um, things can be pretty knee-jerk reaction, but it is nice to know that like when we look at research, we have breeders, uh, we have a product agronomist, they're looking over a number of years and number of locations. So no knee-jerk reaction under something like this because we know it might go the other way the next year. So important to remember and yeah, I'd agree with Jamie on the, the variability, extremely variable across my area. Got into some of that pretty heavy drought area, kind of joins up next to him on the 
the central part of my geography, or central Missouri, south central Missouri. And then coming on further back to the east, we had a lot of late planting, but yields are all over the board, just like he's mentioned. You know, we have field averages on corn, I've heard as low as 30 to as high as 270. And then beans will be much the same way for me. Field averages low as 25, what I've heard, and then as high as 85. So everything in between. Hate to make too many general statements just because it is so variable uh, it's on specific products. But yeah, he, Jamie's right. The more drought tolerant stuff, Aquamax stuff, and the dry area looks great. Where you had more rainfall, the higher yielding stuff looks good. The other thing I will just mention, you know, 2022 to me, it all just comes down to timing. And it's been that way, it seems like, in my geography on corn and soybeans both. So with corn, you know, when we planted, when we got the rainfall, when that hybrid pollinated, all that, did we have any rain through grain fill, kind of determining what the yield's coming out as. And with soybeans, whether or not we got some late rain a little bit in August, depicting whether or not the early maturity is better or the later maturity, and then planting date on top of that. So, yeah, I guess to me the big word is timing in 2022. And then as far as things that kind of wowed me in 22 or big learnings for me, be fungicide on corn. So a lot of the area that I had, I won't say everywhere, but a lot of the area I had 20 plus bushel for fungicide on corn in a year where we did not have much disease pressure at all. Pretty astounding in terms of what these products can do and uh, how they can help that corn kind of hang on for that rain in August during grain fill, which took advantage of it, the stuff that had been sprayed. So I guess that'd be my number one key learning out of 2022. Kind of piggyback off of that. I think it's really important in a year like this to recognize how spotty a lot of those rains were and how that contributes to the yield averages across those fields. Fields could have been pretty close to one another with the same product and uh, and yielded substantially differently if they caught a rain or if they didn't. And I think it's important to be critical of what that timing looked like, what the contributing factors were, and realize that when you're making decisions for next year. Any further notes on that? Yeah, not just rain. I mean, you know, we see just little differences in the timing, like Nick mentioned, but also just differences on how the, the crops manage too. So they could have similar timings on stuff, but just management this season and in years past, you know, that that's big swings in a year like this too. Just when you get a season like this that we've had, you know, for quite a bit of Missouri, it amplifies all the little differences that probably get diluted in the really good years. And so you could just see that, you know, much more stark difference out there in, in how things are managed and the timing and, and the little differences in rainfall. If there's any year to dig into your data, whether that's through digital platforms or my John Deere and whatnot, I think this is a good year to do that. I think exactly. And I guess one other thing I'll add, Abby is just emphasizing what Jamie said on the fertilizer. Like, yes, fertilizer is expensive, but holy cow, did potassium pay this year? It yeah. paid big in a lot of places. Big time. I think it almost goes without saying that there's a lot to dig into this year. Lots more to analyze, but still plenty of time to do that amid our other harvest activities and our preparations for 2023. As you do that, remember you have a lot of resources at your disposal when it comes to your pioneer sales representative, agronomists like Nick and Jamie, myself. We're all here to help you make sound decisions based on the data that you that you have and the products that we have. 
please reach out with any any questions, comments, concerns. We're happy to chew through that information with you. We all want to make sure that we're set up for success in 2023, and uh, we're here to help you do that. As always, reach out with any questions, and happy harvest. Have a good one. Thank you for listening to this episode from the Pioneer Agronomy Team. Be sure to visit pioneer.com backslash podcasts to access additional episodes and learn more about our extensive on-farm data and innovative digital tools that are fueling forward-thinking farming.